Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today we are speaking with Jake Sassville. Jake is a serial media, music, and hospitality entrepreneur, author, and podcaster. He is the CEO and founder of Imaloa Institute in Costa Rica and was the youngest host in late night TV history on ABC. And the White House named him one of the most innovative entrepreneurs under 30. Imaloa is booked years in advance and the clients renew at a rate of 86%. Unreal. Unreal. This is such a powerful conversation and a fun one at that. We dove into Jake's story and his journey from when he was 17. And he experienced many changes in his life from the loss of his 13-year-old brother to leukemia, his dad being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and how this greatly impacted his own personal belief systems and the direction of his life over the next decade. We spoke about the power of responding versus reacting and the power of playfulness and how it is such an important piece in co-creation. And through his story, he, you will hear how he has shattered previous belief systems, pushed the boundaries of what he even he thought was possible, and how he takes action on the clear yeses and then has how learned how to let go of control of the outcome and let it unfold as it is meant to be. And that is exactly what he has done. He has created such an incredible, incredible institute. And I can't wait to share this episode with you. You're going to love it. Okay. Nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was curious, just seeing you on the screen for the first time. Do you get mistaken for Edie Falco all of the time? Yeah, I actually, I can't even count how many times. Or sometimes people will look at me and they're like, oh, God, you remind me of somebody. This happens a lot when my husband and I are out, honestly. And it's funny because he just laughs and he's like, I watch The Sopranos is usually what he says. And they're like, oh, Edie Falco. <laughs> it's yeah, I do actually. Wow. It's actually uncanny. Like I used to go to a Buddhist meditation center with her in New York City back when I was in New York City. Oh my um, God. And you like your lips are like the set, like even the, I don't know what you call this, but like right around your nose, like oh, my little um, creases. The, the creases that we all have. I mean, I'm yeah, not pointing fine. it out. I don't know. I don't know for audio, vid, video, or both. But um, amazing. I mean, you look stunning. But it just is like. I mean, I had to really think: Am I being pranked for a second? Like, is this like a podcast no. prank? No. I will receive yeah. that, and it is funny because I've had it. I've probably had off the top of my head half a dozen podcast episodes in the last year where that's like one of the first few things they asked me. They're like, have you ever been told? I'm like, yeah, I have actually. So 
Yeah. <laughs> well, very nice to meet uh, you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, I there's a lot of things and a lot of parts to your story that I want to dive into. Um, yeah. But I want you to start first. If you want to just give a really brief in- intro as to who is Jake? Who are you? Who is Jake? Oh, man. Well, he was born Jacob. Uh, and I'll just continue talking about myself in third person. You know, I was born in a working class mill town in uh, Lewiston, Maine. I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. Literally, there were tracks and I was in the development, the housing development that was on the other side of them. Um, And literally on the other side of the tracks to where I lived, maybe a fourth of a kilometer away, was one of the most expensive houses in my town of Lewiston, Maine, which was owned by my grandfather, who we didn't really have a relationship with. So it was always very interesting to grow up and kind of the equivalent of low-income housing. And yet my grandfather's mansion was, and I've actually never shared that before, but I just, I remember that visual of like, you go over the tracks and up a fourth of a mile and then there's my grandfather's mansion that we never really, I mean, we had kind of a relationship. My dad was smart to engage with him uh, when we were younger. He was just a little crazy, but Mm -hmm. it also, those early days started to define what money was, that it was bad, what wealth was, that that was not a great thing to aspire to. So the whole thing started really young, uh, Marsha. The whole thing started really young. It's We all have those stories, right? The money stories. We we don't we might not think that we do, but we all do. And you had the two complete polar opposites right there as part of your... Literally growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I grew up, I grew up in Maine and I, um, I was kind of an outrageous child. Um, I think in the second grade, I stormed out of school because I didn't want to make an advent wreath for Christmas. I was went to a Catholic school uh, and I just thought, well, what about what about the Jewish people and what about the Muslim people? How can this way be the right only way? And I, I had a nun that was chasing me down the street around Christmas time, Sister Elaine Lafleur, chasing me down with her bonnet in the wind. And I was in second grade. So I was kind of always... Mm-hmm. Quite from a very early age, which I wasn't really encouraged to do. My dad was a social worker and my mom was a substitute teacher. It's just, you know, I now understand it from Eastern methodologies that I've that I've been around just by virtue of the work at Imaloa at the Institute. It's this energy body that some of us are just born with and can cultivate through meditation and practice, but it's just there always kind of running. And I see it kind of like as a fire in my fire in my belly. I don't know where it came from. It hasn't gone out yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it just seems to get, you know, better refined with age. Um, Anyways, I love this open-ended question because normally people probably give their bio, but I'm just kind of going in places that I've never really gone before. So that's kind of love. I love how it opens up doors. And I mean, it's interesting because I love the piece you said on energy body on the, like almost a rule, rule breaker. But mm-hmm. I actually, what I see when you share a story like that is somebody who's very caring and wants to, you know, include or support lots of people, not just mm-hmm. trying to pick a lane and stay in that space. So mm-hmm. it's interesting, right? That's that's my take on that. And I think- Funny, just- funny you should say that because one of the things my dad said to me before he died is you, because I, I had a pretty reckless 20s, like I was, a, you know- um, and not in the traditional way. I was in the entertainment business, yes, mm-hmm. but I, um, 
I just kind of ran fast everywhere and with everything and tried a bunch of new things. And I really think that's what your 20s is for. But one of the things my dad said, because it was also not easy to be me, like it it hasn't always been fabulous, Marsha. And so one of the things he says is you care so much that you appear not to care at all. And, And that really spoke to me because I was often called out for being callous and ruthless and shrewd and conniving. And I was all of those things. I learned how to sell at an early age through the Tony Robbins school of selling. I mean, 21 years old, learning how to do six and seven figure deals by using and implementing Tony Robbins's methodologies and later NLP and studying with Richard Bandler, who's the founder of NLP, like all of these things in my early 20s. And so I appeared not to care, but it's actually, and I think there was some wisdom there and I didn't really see it until my 30s, but thanks for calling it out again. That's good. You're welcome. You're welcome. I actually just finished my NLP trainers. And so I've been in like- Did you? Mm-hmm. It was very. Was Bandler doing it, or did he have one of the teachers doing no, it? No, but my teacher has done work through him, and it was very like there's. It's a very transformational experience to work yeah. through NLP, and it was the one thing I off openly say that two years ago I started doing because I felt called to do it. I didn't understand exactly what it was. And it felt like it was the first thing I was doing for me and not choosing it because it was strategy for a business. It was like, no, I I think this is going to benefit me personally. And ultimately it will affect the business, but this was the piece of, I felt called to it for some reason. And it's been such an incredible deep dive journey. Uh-huh. Had to hear that too. I had to hear that today. This is like a good 12-step meeting. I love that. I had to hear that. You know, sometimes we do think to not do so. I've been thinking about doing this Panchakarma in Bali, which mm-hmm. I'm not a Bali person. I don't even really, I mean, I went to Europe over the summer, but I haven't traveled in a couple of years, like just very happy nesting and doing my thing down here in Costa Rica. But I'm like, can I take off three and a half weeks like to go into? And so I'm really grappling with this. And so for you to say that, I think sometimes we just have to give ourselves the grace to grow and the permission to be able to do the things that we're getting the whisper on. I mean, you say it was, uh, what what did you say that it it came to you or you? It it, it, it literally came to me across my path. I didn't even fully understand what NLP was, but every piece of my gut said, you have to do this. So I just took my practitioners and loved it and felt curious for more. And in that process, I started to hear about how you can create your own coaching certification through NLP. And I was like, oh, how do you do that? Well, you have to finish your master's and you have to do your trainers. And it's literally been like, no joke, three, the last two years has been, I might as well have gotten my master's is the amount of work that it's been, but the amount of growth. Oh, you've been doing this. Oh, you said practitioner. So you've been doing this for years. For two years straight. I did my practitioners, then my master's. And now I just finished my trainers and it's so I can teach it now. Well, you gotta, you gotta go do, you gotta go do a session with Bandler. I mean, I think he's still doing them. I just talked to those people a couple of weeks ago. He's doing them in Orlando. No. Wow. I have no, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I think he's doing, I think he's doing persuasion engineering in Orlando. Cause I was thinking about sending our sales team up there. What is like the top, I know it's your podcast, not mine, but what is the top thing that you took away from the last two years? Like if you had to really at top level it, like skim the top, what would that, what would it be? Oh, I love this reverse engineer. This is awesome. Um, I think for me, I will say that <laughs> Half of, well, not half, 95% of the stuff we believe isn't real. And Uh yeah. And so what is it? 
Well, it's old stories. It's old limiting beliefs. It's old things that aren't even ours. And the thing is, is that we talk and we hear a lot about triggers and things that challenge us. Um, but the thing is this, those triggers are not the problem. The roots of the stories are the problem. And that was something I didn't understand. And actually they don't mean anything about you. Like I've made them mean something about myself Mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. They don't mean anything about, Mm -hmm. I think that's been probably one of the number overview things. And the second I would say is, is that you can't out muscle a limiting belief. You can't push and strategize and outmuscle a limiting belief. Mm-hmm. You have to go to the root of limiting belief first, change that, and then go from there. Strategy won't fix it. If you don't believe that it's possible, there's no strategy that's going to fix it. Mm. Such a good reminder of this technology that he came up with, with Grinder, Grinder, whatever his name is, John Grinder, probably on acid and LSD. I think he spoke, I think speaks he open. Was, yes. Yeah, I think he speaks openly about this. I can't remember whether that was backdoor conversations or front door, but I think he's open about that. But amazing that that's what led to this technology that has just moved so many people over the last 50 years. Yeah, cool. Good for you. Congratulations on well, going through you. that. Thank you. Thank you. So now let's flip it back to you because sure. I want to... So you, I mean, you've done so many different roles in your life that I can see through your bio and everything that you've done. Um, there's a turning point that happens when you're 17, right? This is mm-hmm. a, this is a turning point for you, um, where you were faced with some pretty heavy challenges and then mm-hmm. you started to obviously make some different choices that led you into the work that you did in your early twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that you're right. It seems like someone's done the research. I have. Um, <laughs> yeah, 17 was an interesting year. 17, 18. First of all, I was 375 pounds. So I was a size 52 pant. I remember because I had to shop at JCPenney. But that's not even the worst of what 17 was in high school. Uh, I my, my brother died when I was 17 and he was 13. And it's funny, when you said all the roles, I didn't know where you were going with the question. But when you were talking about the roles in my head, you know, because we're all meaning making machines, like you just said about NLP, yep. I was like, oh, she's going to ask a business question. And I really have to be the CEO, CFO. CMO. Like that's where I was going to go with my answer. But then I was like, nope, got to get present. Um, However, it does connect because I do think even though I'm the CEO of MLO and I have an operations team and a finance team, I think that what happened when I was 17 did a few things. Watching my brother die in my parents' arms made me somehow recognize two things. Number one, And I don't know if this is true, so I'm even willing to question my own sort of belief system around what that was 20 years ago, whatever it was, but that no one else could support me in the way that I could. Like, I was just going to have to get it together, just Mm -hmm. keep it together, because I was watching people fall apart around me. And Mm -hmm. so if I didn't want to be victim to that, and of course, this is a belief system that cultivated and transformed into action that, you know, made me successful but wasn't necessarily the healthiest. I don't like so true. folks on podcasts or when I hear interviews of people saying the grit, the grind, the hustle, and they're justifying why they are the way that they are mm-hmm. rather than actually looking at why they are the way that they are. And is that healthy? And is that regenerative? Is that helping build a regenerative business rather than an extractive business? Is that helping 
create sustainable relationships. So while I developed that belief system when I was 17, watching my baby brother die, he had leukemia and then died from complications called graft-versus-host disease. I don't justify the belief systems. I'm just letting you know what started to percolate as a result of that, that I'm, I have to save myself and I have to look after myself and no one's really got my back. That's what I cultivated as a belief system. That's the first thing. Second thing is, whoa, if, if watching my brother die in 2003 in, in a hospital room at the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital, if that's possible, then anything else must be possible in this life. So it also it cultivated complementary belief systems or maybe contrasting belief systems where nobody's got my back and I got to work my ass off if I want anything. And then, holy crap, if this is possible, if I can experience this, then anything must be possible. So it gave me this, this belief system also that anything was possible. And that's how I chose to live my life for the next 10 years. And I still believe things are possible, but how I go about creating that possibility, mm-hmm. how my word creates my world, how I create possibility through conversation and inquiry instead of exertion, exhaustion, and hustling, that's what's changed after that 10 years. But I went into a 10-year period where I was like, shit, anything's possible. So let's go. Let's let's create some magic. And then that's how I ended up in TV. I mean, I was already in TV, but I told myself when I was 17, I'll be the youngest host in late night TV history. I did it when I was 21 on ABC after Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, I created a reality talk show before reality shows or hybrid shows or internet shows were even a thing in 2005 and six. I created a loosely scripted sitcom for ABC Family. I created crowdsourced late night TV before crowdsourcing or YouTube or taking suggestions from the audience was even a thing on Fox and CW. I did all these things before 27 thinking that anything was possible and shit, I better get going because nobody's going to help me. My parents make 50,000 a year and I want to be in New York City. So I better figure out this money game real fast because shaming wealth is probably not the answer. So anyways, Uh, look at that. Now we're in it. This is good. (laughs) This is deep. I love it. Um, Pardon me. I love how you shared like in, in that critical moment, those belief systems started to form and they serve two purposes, right? Maybe maybe one that helped you to see everything that was possible. And I think that we all have to have, I, I do think this, this time where it's like, okay, I guess I have to grind to make it happen. Uh-huh. And then we hit a point where it's like, wait, what if I don't actually have to? What if I can choose more aligned action? What if I can choose something different? So I do, I mean, I also think we have to be careful not to swing the pendulum so far the other way. Cause I do see so much right now about manifest it, dream it, it happens. And it's like, well, there's, there is some action required. Like you do have to create something and you have done that. You've created a lot of different things. So mm-hmm. could you, out of all of those things you just shared, which one was your favorite? What was your favorite experience that you created that you can look back at and say over that 10 year period? that you can look back and say, that was really cool. You mean before it all got washed away by Hurricane Sandy in 2012? Sure, I'll be happy to do that, Marsha. Yes, we're going there. Um, Yeah, no, that's good. I want to also say, I'll answer your question. Actually, I'll answer your question first. I would say my favorite thing that I was able to create, you know, 
think it wasn't a thing that I created. I would say that the things that I created were vehicles for experiences that were really interesting. And I really liked being 21 and working with people that were two and three times my age who were very set in their ways. I had a team of 40 by the age of 21. My office was in Tribeca, New York City. It was bananas. But what I enjoyed most through the vehicle that was my reality talk show, The Edge, which was basically a late night show within a late night show. So it was how a 21-year-old gets his own show as the show's in progress. It was fun. It was like a reality show and a talk show. So I go from like doing a million dollar deal with Ford in Detroit, literally as cameras were following, to hosting, you know, Kanye West on my back when Kanye was just coming up, not now, but Kanye West on my music tour, because I had a music campus tour, to doing an interview with the cast of 30 Rock back when 30 Rock. It was just, and the the fluidity of the show was extremely creative for me to map all this out with a really creative team of people, all of whom now have gone on to win Emmys. And, you know, I don't know if you know the show Impractical Jokers, but two of the four Impractical Jokers on True TV were my head writers. Like we all came up together. It was really, um, it was a really creative time. But I think what I enjoyed creating the most was shattering belief systems by sheer force of will of people that worked around me. Like, you know, I'd be on the brink of like losing it all at the age of 21. And eventually I did lose it all several times, but I'd always be able to pull it through in the early days because I just through sheer force of will. And I just enjoyed what that created for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I enjoyed being able to do that, even though it was exhausting and I would never go back to it. I enjoyed that underdog come from behind, that I had made a brand where I was able to do that in my 20s. Now, if I was doing that close to 40, I'd be pulling out my hair that I don't have because I shaved my head last year on my 36th birthday. But I, I'd be pulling out my hair because it's like, you don't want to continue those patterns. It's It was fun in my... It was the way I learned. You know, I didn't learn in college. I dropped out of college. I learned by like pushing boundaries, shaking the metal. You know, when the rocket goes through the orbit, it shakes the metal. And that was basically all of my 20s. And I enjoyed creating experiences where I could shake the metal. Wow. I absolutely love that explanation. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I don't even, I'm not going to do this um, explanation justice, but I heard the other day, it was on a video and it was talking about how like when the rocket takes off, like the amount of energy it takes in that first like 10 seconds. Yeah. is and most people, if you take that to a person, they they get part way and they're like, oh, this is too much work. But really, you're just shy of breaking through. And then when the rocket actually takes off, it breaks away all of the pieces that helped it to. I don't know the rocket part names, but it's a they, great point. And they break away. And so it's like, you know, some of the people that are holding on to you as you continue to go you see them start to fall away and you think, wait, is I, should I not be doing this? When actually they're, they're supposed to fall away. They're supposed yeah. to change. And it's supposed yeah. to go as the rocket goes. That's a great analogy. And I think also like the first 10% or 10 seconds, whatever it is, whatever that's equivalent to in a business or a human life or whatever it is, um, I think is also, it's also matched with our, you know, needing to be able to let go. Like it's as much about holding on for dear life as you shoot up as also being able to let go. So then there's a paradox that I think a lot of people don't get. 
And then they start to create the stories around what happened or didn't happen. And then suddenly they're in their thirties having, or forties or fifties or sixties, mm-hmm. having achieved not what they wanted because they were so busy making stories about what was happening rather than letting go. What I, you know, what is said in the 12 step rooms of letting go and letting God, mm-hmm. but letting go, but also holding on. And that is the paradox that I had to start learning in my mid to late twenties. And I think that we all do, if we're going to build really beautiful businesses, uh, um, beautiful businesses that have and beautiful lasting lives power. Yes, and that have lasting power. Yeah. Well, that's right. The lasting power thing is the important thing, right? Because I would have these high highs and the low lows throughout my twenties. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just about as much consistency as is humanly possible, taking action for the thrill of taking action. You know, one thing my 12-step program really got me is I am out of the results-based business. Mm -hmm. I used to take action for the result that it may produce. Now I take action every day for the thrill of taking action. It's like a dog that puts its head out the window the bugs are just the by the bugs that get in the eye going 60 miles an hour, just a byproduct of the thrill of being out of the window. For me, taking action is the thrill. And people are like, well, how do you get anything done if you're not results oriented? That's again the paradox. It's like you take the take the action, you turn the results over to, in my case, the higher power of my understanding. And magical things start to happen. People talk about this manifesting thing, but the challenge that I have with manifesting and all of the, even the word, what the secret really perpetuated, which I was all about back in 2006, is that you can just think it and so it shall be. Right. Or that you're so focused on the result that you've forgotten the art and practice of surrender. Mm-hmm. So now, when I take action, sure, it's exciting to take action and what may or may not happen, but I am so not attached to the outcome that it allows for a much more effortless experience. You know, I had to deal with this a lot in the past year because I sold Imaloa to three new investors um, to exit 36 investors. And it was a massive deal. And, you know, it all went to shit in July. And I had until December when the notes became due, like it was really difficult the notes being the, the 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 note holders that were in the company. And it became really stressful. And I just kept going back to that, that core of like, take action, turn the results over. If Imolo is meant to continue and you're meant to continue with it in some capacity, it will be, it doesn't matter what I'm doing or not doing. All that matters is that I'm taking action. And that's really what moved me from a place of hustle in creating from a place of hustle into creating from a place of surrender, which a lot of people see as giving up, but we can talk about that if you want to. Oh, you, yeah. You're speaking all my language here because for me, I was the the type A persistent person who surrender meant quitting. I didn't understand that. What sur- I didn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, when somebody asked me once, how do you learn how to surrender? And I said, to be completely honest, I think you learn surrender because it's the only option left. And then you- exactly. You don't learn it first. Exactly. So you get there faster when you don't cloud yourself or have too many veils between yourself and reality, which is why I choose not to drink. I don't do drugs. I'm kind of boring. I watch Judge Judy in between calls like a middle-aged housewife from Kansas, and I'm fine with that. (laughs) Uh, And I go to bed at like seven o'clock. I eat at four. Like I want to have as few veils and friction in between me and my whatever my authentic self is or whatever ease and flow feels like to me Mm -hmm. um, so that I don't have to like beat myself up in 
to surrender, but I can just be in a consistent state of surrender. But I love that because so many people don't get to surrender because they have too many options left. They have too many options and they think that they're exerting power over all of them. They think that their bank accounts and their investments and their mortgage and their team and this, everything that they think they control is all an illusion. And therefore they never get to the sweetness, the sweet softness of surrender. That is so good, Marsha. It's because it's, but it's true though. It's because it's the only option that they have left. Yeah. But if you have too many options, then you never have the only option to have left. So then you're always in this state of like thinking that you're in charge of any of this. Exactly. And then you're also stuck in thinking that I'm missing something. There's something else I need to be doing. That's a lack mindset. That's a mindset of like, I'm doing it wrong. You're not doing it wrong. It's just recognizing that like, I I really build a lot in intentions and daily and habits. And like, I am such a boring, like I am a creature of habit. People laugh at me at the amount and the things that I do and how regimented it is. So I believe in mastering my daily habits that will create the results that I want. Yes, I have ideas of where I want to go and what I want to create, but my whole focus is not on that. My focus is on mastering these daily things every day. That's what moves the needle forward, in my opinion. Beautiful. Beautiful. Loving this. Now I want to, there's so many other things that I do want to, I want to dive into. You mentioned Imolo. Can you tell the audience what that business was, how it started? And obviously there's been some changes that have happened with it. Yeah. So I would say that Imaloa Institute is, you know, at its core, it's a, um, it's, it's a a retreat center. Um, obviously it, it ends up being so much more when you dive deeper and you come and visit us and you realize, oh, I'm reconnecting with nature in a way that I never thought I would. And I'm, you know, our gourmet plant-based food, like reconnecting with your gut, which is the second most important thing to be informing with good food behind your brain and, and being nutritious with it. So there's all these, and then there's the teachers, the transformational teachers that teach it in Maloa from around the world, like really um, incredibly profound teachers, like some of the world-class, I don't even know how to say it fully because it's like words are so limiting, but it's this beautiful cacophony of transformation and a gourmet food experience and surreal accommodations in the middle of the jungle where nature really is the star. And so um, Imaloa is a retreat center in Costa Rica. It started, I mean, I think it started years ago. I think that, um, I mean, it did start four and a half years ago, but I think it started even years before that. And part of it was really listening to the whisper in my own life as things kind of got choppy and rocky. And then realizing that I could turn one of my greatest pains in life into my purpose if I listened to that whisper intently and didn't try to change it, didn't try to mute it, Mm -hmm. but just listened to what life was trying to tell me. You know, growing up, up was tricky already which you got a sense of brother diagnosed with cancer. Dad's diagnosed with Parkinson's mom starts drinking a lot. Brother dies. Dad slowly dying over 20 years. Mom's kind of out of my life. I've got to have my own back. You know, I mean, it's the whole, again, that was the belief system. I've come to realize in my thirties that I can have my own back and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it came from a place of resistance for a lot of years that having to have my own back, it was a lot of resentment that I had to do that because you want people around you that are meant to take care of you to take care of you. And that wasn't happening in my life in the way that, you know, it, it ought to have been and, you know, whatever it is. So all of these, th- my pain into my purpose, you know, there wasn't really a stable home life, not because my parents were 
not providing for us, but because, you know, my, my brother was in the hospital three hours away uh, and I had to raise myself through high school. I was a latchkey kid. Oprah ended up really raising me on the TV because I was like, well, I guess I'll go home and watch Oprah. Maybe there's, cause I was questioning and always looking for answers. And so for Imaloa to be this home and an experience where human beings come to awaken their consciousness, where they feel at home in their transformation, it's not lost on me that I created the home that I didn't have as a kid. And, you know, the fact that we have so many renewals, people coming from all over the world, it's like, okay, got it. Pain into purpose if you just shut up and listen to the whisper. Got that. Imaloa started really in Maui. I, I moved. So at 27, I lost everything in a hurricane. Everything got washed away. I moved into grandma's basement in Maine, uh, right near those same tracks. Um, and I was supposed to be there, those railroad tracks that I talked about at the top of the show, I was supposed to be there for a year. And I was there for two, excuse me. I was, I was supposed to be there a month and I was there for two years and I got into a 12 step program and I started learning to take action and turn the results over to God. I started to learn to listen to life's whisper. Nothing was working. I started and failed at five businesses. Like I was out of commission from 27 to 29, mm -hmm. but there was a whole reboot happening that I couldn't see at that time. Mm -hmm. And then the sixth business worked. It was actually a podcast. Um, I, I, grew I from, love you're going here because I wanted to hear about this too. Go ahead. Yeah. And it's also how Imaloa started because the podcast was really a way to make amends for all those I had pissed off in my early 20s. So I started this podcast because it was like 2013. And I was like, well, if Joe Rogan can do it, I can do it too. And so I started a podcast. Grandma didn't have internet. I recorded the show from a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot in her 2004 Jetta. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I called famous people, like people that was, were on my shows. I called CEOs of companies that I had done business with fortune 500 companies. I called owners of NBA teams, all people that I had come across in my work that I hadn't necessarily treated very well, just because of being 20 is twenties and hustling and basically extended and said, Hey, I'm doing this new podcast. Can you do an interview? And when I look back at it, I didn't say, because I want to apologize to you, but by showing them in their very best light, that was my living amends. Mm -hmm. And I listened to the whisper on that, right? I was not, I just listened to the whisper and that whisper grew from zero to 250,000 downloads a month in three months. It's crazy. Earning nothing for two years to all of a sudden eight, nine, $10,000 a month on a podcast. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. I remember when I saw the first ads sell because I was working with a company. It's called Midroll. I think it still exists, but it was bought by Scripps company. I remember seeing 8,000 in the first month of selling ads, which was three months into the podcast. And I was like, I haven't made this money ever. Like even in the TV show, I underpaid myself. So it was a wild ride. And I, and I did 300 of those episodes initially and just did them all from a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot, made money, and then realized I didn't want to be in New York or LA, took action, turned the results over, started looking for homes in Maui. I applied for a home with a 500 credit score that was $5,000 a month with a plan to Airbnb the cottage. Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, let's try it. And it worked. I remember when the property manager called me back, her name was Neda. And she's from Molokai. And she kind of reminds me of the grandmotherly figure in Moana for anyone who has seen yeah. Moana. And she kind of talks in a sing-song voice like this. 
And she called me and she said, Jake, it's Netta. I said, oh, hi, Netta. This was two weeks after I applied for a $5,000 house that I had no business applying for. And she says, you can have the house if you want it. And I said, really? (laughs) And to your point about like surrendering and what I've been saying about taking action, turning the results over, I had such imposter syndrome filling out that application for that house because I thought, this is crazy. Nobody's going to, what is it? But my friend had reminded me how good I felt on Maui. I got the house. I moved four weeks later. I woke up the first day, walked out on my deck, glorious on Haleakala Volcano. And I see Oprah and Gail across the street. And I'm like, excuse me, what's happening? They were in their little four by four, their little doom buggy, because she has 1,500 acres up there. Yeah. She's my neighbor. I went from grandma's basement to Oprah's neighbor. On my first walk, I see Oprah and Gail. I was like, what is happening to me? (laughs) Talk about it. All these people out here in these podcasts talking about quantum leaps. And I'm like, wow, this is on another level. And of course, Oprah had been very key for me in my early life of Mm -hmm. like, when my brother, you get, you get the whole thing. I do. Imaloa started in that house to answer your question, Marsha, because what happened was I Airbnb'd the cottage. It was never empty for three years. I made several thousand dollars a month, paid off, and never paid for rent in Maui. Mm-hmm. Cottage just paid for it all. I had this huge three-bedroom house in the main house. I opened my doors, literally never locked my doors, and just invited friends, friends of friends, friends of friends of friends, stay in Maui. And hundreds of people ended up staying with me. People I didn't know. People, Rwandan genocide survivors who were writing their memoirs, stage four cancer folks who were getting treated for prostate cancer that wanted to come to the healing of Mother Maui and all of this from all around the world. And crazy connections started to happen. And what I recognized is that people want to feel at home in their transformation. I had never been to a retreat, but I said, I'm going to start a retreat center. And that's how Imaloa started. And then when it started, did it start then in Maui or did you start it completely in Costa Rica? I believe that our word creates our world. I literally spoke this place into existence over three years. Like people thought I was nuts. If you talk to any of my Maui friends, they were like, we thought he was cuckoo. Because I was talking, I was looking at property. I was making offers. I was like in the action. I didn't care. I was like, let's go. And then I met someone who became my partner, now my ex-business partner. And I had the vision. I was really a visionary and really stepping into, in Maui, stepping into the fact that I really am a visionary. And people call themselves visionaries, but like a serial visionary, like consistently seeing the future and like turning around and inviting everyone else out on the leading edge with me. Like that's just been my life, but I had never really accepted it. I had always been gaslit or believed that I was less powerful than I really was because other people wanted to keep me in a certain place in order so that they may benefit. This was a whole thing in my 20s and 30s that I've just now come out of with the with the recapitalization of Imaloa this year, actually. Anyways, so my business partner was really good at raising money. So he liked the vision. I mean, I had to talk to him about it four times before he like got on board with it, but whatever. I'm consistent. And so he wrote a Facebook post and we raised a half a million dollars on a single Facebook post. Oh, and I was come like, on. Seriously? Wow. What is this? So I said, write another one. This is fun. So a couple of days later, he wrote another one, raised another million dollars. We raised three and a half million dollars on Facebook. Wow. wow. 
made an offer on a house in Maui. It ended up falling through. I actually pulled this out of it at the last minute because I realized that regulations on Maui would not support what Imaloa, you know, what I wanted Imaloa to be. And he said, well, you have $3 million in the bank, so you better find a place. Where are you putting this money? Because we literally had raised the money over that year. And I said, well, it's an intercontinental institute. We're building one on every continent. Costa Rica is my second. So why don't we just make Costa Rica our first? Literally, this is how I make decisions. Like to most other people, this would appear to be a pipe dreamer, like someone who just talks nonsense and might be questionably mentally healthy. (laughs) You know, like, okay, he's just like, okay, let's go to Costa Rica with $3 million in the bank. I mean, I called real estate brokers. You'll love this. Maybe, Marsha. I don't know. I called real estate brokers in Costa Rica the day after Christmas. I said, who wants to make the fastest commission in their life? And eight people hung up the phone. Here's the thing. I believe two people said eight out of 10 hung up the phone. The one that stayed, his name was Larry. And he kind of talked like, it's from New Jersey. What do you mean the fastest commission in my life? I was like, first of all, you're going to have to talk faster because I got to place $3 million. Larry, I don't have time. (laughs) I can't. I was like, speed it up. I don't know what you've been doing down there on the beach. Anyways, no, he's a great guy. He has a family. He works at Coldwell Banker. And he, he and I said, I'm on a plane in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I'm landing in Costa Rica 12 hours after that. I had a list of specifications that I needed for a property. Like I was legitimately insane. Like 20 acres need to meet the seller at the time of my tour. It needs to be on a mountaintop. Needs to have views of the ocean. I mean, I had the most, Larry showed me the property that became in Maloa. First time, first property I saw, and we bought it 30 days later. The point of that story, other than it being an interesting kind of different story, is I have come to recognize and lean into, Marsha, that playfulness is actually a really important piece of co-creation. And, you know, I was at a lovely lunch yesterday with some middle-aged folks. I was the youngest one there and it was my friend's house and I had a lovely lunch, but I was like, oh, these people don't actually play that much. Like it's like the the host actually did. She's very playful, but everyone else runs a little serious and people only start to play when they start drinking. Mm -hmm. And I just, I left. I was like, I'm out. She's like, what do you mean you're out? There's 13 people at the table. The thing is, is that I give zero shits about decorum. And so I just am like, I'm done. I'm cooked. I'm baked. It was great lunch. Nice to meet all of you. Goodbye. Because to me, if you have to drink in order to play, that is so inauthentic that I don't want to be around. And I love this person that that I was with, but I I was meeting the the host. I really enjoy her, but I just, that's not my kind of, I want to play. I want to be silly. I mean, people think I'm drunk half the time. I haven't drank since 2007. And, you know, the thing is, and the secret of it is, I think people think that they can play up till a certain level. Mm -hmm. I got, Investors who are multi, multi hundred millionaires, if not billionaires, who are, you know, early stage first investors in billion dollar companies that have IPO'd. And I'm playing with them like nobody's business and everyone else is so prim and proper. But the way that I engage, the way that I talk, I'm silly. I'm just, I'm authentically who I am. It works. Mm -hmm. And to folks who are listening who think that they have to be a certain way in order to get people to pay them a certain amount of attention. I have tried, believe me, I'm a, I was a gay man in New York City. Like I have tried to be a certain way in order to get certain attention paid to me. And I was successful in that attention getting paid. But how empty is that? Very. Both in my relationships, but also in my business. And so 
I've just flipped the script entirely. And I think that if anybody listening gets that message from today, God, I hope it's that message. And, and it takes some learning. It's, 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 um, it can be a little shaky sometimes to be playful because you're like, Oh, what's too much. Am I going to mess it up? And you probably will mess it up and you probably will annoy people or whatever it is. I certainly have. You don't really care. I care in the moment because my ego's hurt, but retrospectively, I'm much rather life that I'm living now than what I would have been if I would have been packaged in a certain way in college or whatever it is. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing all of the things that you just did. And there was something that just really hit for me at the end there that I want the message to land for people is that, you know, as you are your authentic self, there will be Mm. people who are maybe put off by that. Maybe that's too much. Maybe they judge that. Maybe they like mysteriously, like deep down are a mirror going like, why can't I have fun in my life? Like how come he gets to do it and I don't get to. Totally. Right. So the people that you irritate the most sometimes um, you're really just being a mirror for them and you're bringing something up for them. So I I believe that is very relevant there. And it's funny because this piece on fun, I feel like we're in such a, we've gone through so much transformation the last couple of years, right? Like we've all had so maybe really challenged our values, really challenged, like, what do I actually want? Like, do I actually want that job that I thought I wanted all this time? Because maybe I don't. And starting to recognize it. And it's funny because one of the things that I wrote down for as a script for this year, I like to script, I like to like, you know, call in all of these pieces. But for me, it's like, how do I want to feel? How do Mm -hmm. I want to feel? And how can joy be that compass? And how can fun be that compass and playful be that compass, that compass. And again, living an intention and choosing those things can create what it is that I am Mm. looking to create. And I think that we've, we, it's crazy, but a lot of us have forgot how to have fun. Mm. It's like Mm. we completely pushed it out of the wayside. I know I'm one of them and I'm openly saying that that, I mean, I love having fun, but I actually sometimes have to create scenarios like, just let's just go do something fun Mm -hmm. because life became so regimented for so long that it was like, there was no room for it. Mm. It's definitely a muscle. Mm -hmm. It's definitely, but it also is a, it's an, it's an amalgamation. It's a cumulative impact of choices. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I really got from my 12-step program is that I ended up where I ended up. My 12-step program, by the way, is the money program, not the beverage program. Okay. So it's debtors anonymous and under earners anonymous. Cause I know I've been saying 12-step and people think yeah. that I'm a recovering alcoholic. So I'm a recovering debtor and recovering under earner. And one of the things that we really get in program is our choice back. We realize we get to choose that our first reaction is not our final reaction. And that in many ways we ended up as addicts in my case, because I thought I didn't have any choice. Well, I got a debt on the credit card. I don't have any money or I have to, yes, I have to borrow money from that wealthy or famous person in my twenties because I, I, you know, my business, I mean, can't you see, look at my bank account. We think we don't have any choice. This is often how we end up as uh, addicts. And um, and that's been very profound for me to get choice back because we get we get choice in the matter. And to your to your point, being able to get choosy in how we react, in how we design our day, how we design the hours when we're not working, 
how we choose to react to working at a job that we may not necessarily like. I mean, or be in situations that we may not necessarily prefer. Mm-hmm. How are we really choosing to react to that? And if we understood, and I have to remind myself of this every day, it's why I still go to 12-step meetings. If I understood how my reaction to the things that are unwanted are creating things, I mean, you want to talk about real manifesting? I mean, enough with all this woo-woo shit. Just look at your reaction to what's in your life right now, unwanted or wanted, and start to recognize that that is a domino effect into a future that we can't possibly see, but that is constantly impacting where we are in the present. Oh, 100%. And the, the, the thing is, is our reaction. I always like to differentiate between reaction and responding. So reaction is like giving away, in my opinion, giving away power. I was a great reactor. I was a great fighter. It's a like great you, distinction. I love this distinction. It was a great fighter. Like if you needed, like if I was backed into a corner, like you, you should probably turn and run because yeah. that's what I was like. Um, that was a survival technique. I learned that from, you know, just from, that's how I learned to survive from younger age. And those traits benefited me for a long time, but then they don't. And Mm -hmm. then they don't. And they became the demise to me, to be completely honest. And I had to learn how to respond. Responding is very different. Like I don't have to take part in every single argument or, or comment or whatever message that happens in front of me. Responding is me honoring my boundaries and listening to what I need and choosing where I put my energy. So I find there's a big difference between those two words. Huge, especially for people in business. Like I cannot uh, underscore how much Boomerang on Gmail has changed my life. I don't know if you know Boomerang, but it's a silly little app where I respond to all my emails, but I delay it by a day before sending. You can Boomerang it. So it'll arrive 24 hours later. Why? Because in that 24 hours, if I choose to change my mind about how I want to respond, I can go back in and edit the email. I mean, simple things. These are things that I used to be very trigger happy back in my 20s. So I installed this like years ago and I still use it today because it allows me to have refined responses rather than just reaction. I also was talking to a Kabbalah teacher of mine once in New York City who says that he says no to everything that's brought to him at first. I said, well, that's kind of fucking negative. What's the matter with you? Hope I can swear on your show. Sorry, not sorry. Absolutely can. (laughs) Okay. But he's like a real New Yorker. And I'm like, why do you say no to everybody? Like, that sounds like such a horrifying life. Like, why, why would you just be in a, why don't be in a state of yes? And he says, because when I say no, it gives me time to think and reflect and it gets it, it separates me from my egoic response. So if someone offers me something really exciting and I say no, I'm out of my ego response. I get to think about it and then I get to come back and make an informed decision. I said, interesting tactic, interesting way to kill the ego with a no. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. I love that. Yeah. So now as you've gone through this with the changes in your business, what's up for you next? What's up for me? Mm. I'm going to schedule that three-week Panchakarma in Bali, and I'm going to do that 30-hour flight. And that has been being put off since 2019. And I know that's not necessarily sexy or interesting, but it is so important that I start to prioritize myself. When I tell you that I have prioritized, we were the only place to stay open and not fire a soul during COVID in the region of Costa Rica that we're in, in the hospitality business. Everyone else had no jobs. We were the only place within a hundred mile radius to stay open, not fire a soul. And so 
I've been thinking about other people for years. I've been thinking about their best interests. I've been thinking about my investors, dealing with all of their requests. I've been dealing with other people's needs Mm -hmm. for years in a very acute world-changing time, which just accentuated everything. And I'm not done thinking about other people, but I'm going to flex the muscle, which is really hard for me, of thinking about myself. And believe me, it's so foreign and it's weird to even talk about it because it sounds so silly, but it's been what it is. And you know, I'm so grateful for platforms like yours that invite us to have conversations like these because it actually really is a cathartic way for me to get out of my head and recognize that that is a priority. It is a top priority. And I pray honestly that anybody listening, that if it's a priority for them that they've been burying, that something within the authenticity of what it is I'm sharing for myself is able to open open something within them. So that's really what's next for me. Imolo is doing wonderfully. We're booked out a year and a half, almost two years in advance. Um, we say we say no to 13 out of every 15 people that apply to host at Imaloa. Uh, obviously, we're trying to say no to a little less number of people. So we have to see demand. So we're trying to see about what a second center might look like so that we can accommodate the demand and still have an amazing product. Yeah, but I think 2023 for me is the year of rest, um, resting for no reason at all. Um, you know, I'm up at four, I go to bed at seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to know what it's like to lounge in my bed for a little while, you know, in the maybe morning, five. maybe five, maybe six. It's just, I don't need to keep on keeping on all the time. It's okay to just really let go. So that's what I'm telling myself. We'll see if I can get my head to my heart on that one, but that's what I'm planning for oh, next. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that the change of scenery and going somewhere else yeah. is going to make this a little bit easier because yeah. like you, sometimes we have to remove ourselves from the environment that we have a hard time creating change in and opening it, opening that up. And I know you've given others permission to do the same. I have. Oh my God. We double our, you know, Costa Rica requires X amount of time for vacation. We've doubled that vacation. We pay people double and triple what they would get anywhere else. Like I have advocated for the well being of others tirelessly. And I don't often talk about it, but I am now, whatever. But it's like, yeah, I just got to be able to do that. And for me, and I think other busy people, because the Pancha Karma, it's called the Pancha Karma, which is an Ayurvedic technology from 5,000 years ago. It's a whole system. It's a whole protocol. It's a cleanse. It's a protocol. It's a, anyways, people can Google it if they want to. But because it is a protocol, I get to change the environment, like you said, which I think is key for change. But I also get to go into someone else's system. It just happens to be a system of health and wellness and rejuvenation. So that way I'm not just sitting on a beach in Mexico. I'm not interested in just sitting on a beach saying what's next in my life. It's like, give me some action to take while I can, you know, God, thank, thank you, God. And, you know, but toward my, yeah, toward the wellness it's, you know, anyways, it's, it's an important distinction, I think, especially for people who are in their heads a lot. Oh, a hundred percent. And I absolutely love this. Um, I know we, are on time. And I want to make sure that we honor your time. Where are the best places for people to connect, learn more about you? I would say 
Imaloa's website and Instagram because one of the things I've done as of my 37th birthday is I personally am off social media for a year, which is really different for me. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I put a post up about it on November 30th, 2022, and I'll be off until November 30th, 2023. So later this year. So people can find out more about Imaloa at Imaloa.institute on Instagram or Imaloa Institute. Um, you can Google and there's a whole lot of podcasts that I've done. Obviously the Jake Sasseville show, if you want to listen to those, I kind of like that people can't get to me directly. I mean, they can always email Imaloa and, and find out how to, but, um, you know, the DMs and the constant, I mean, you look in your DMs and Instagram and it's people wanting things from you most of the time, at least for me. And I'm just like, it's nice to have the spaciousness, a little bit of spaciousness. So that's how people can contact. And if they use keyword, oh my gosh, Jake, if any of your listeners end up going to Imaloa's website and they use keyword Jake, they get $400 off any retreat. So that's Mm kind of cool if they want to, if, if it's interesting to people. That's very cool. Well, maybe I want to. That's <laughs> just let us know. Oh my gosh. Love that. But Sasha, I know. I would love to have you. I would love this. I would absolutely love this. This has been just such a fun conversation and so much value for everyone. So I am so grateful for everything that you've shared um today on the show and for the listeners. And I do have one more question for you. Yeah. What lesson in life are you most grateful for? You know, the one that brings me serenity, which is when my shoulders relax and my heart opens back up, is <laughs> it's so funny because I just love it so much. And I really, I'm going through in my head and seeing if it really is the most impactful. And I think it is the most impactful lesson to my overall nervous system health. Mm-hmm. And it's that I don't actually, we, you made a great distinction between responding and reacting. Sometimes, most of the time, I don't need to respond. And people might be thinking, CEO, you have to be responding. It's amazing to me how if I keep my mouth shut on an email strand or in a text strand, how people around me just figure it out, how it burns off, how the emotion goes, how things just get sorted. Mm -hmm. I always marvel at it when I take two or three weeks off even the weekend off, it's like everything gets solved. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's universal for everybody, but it's been the most impactful lesson in my life because it's just allowed me to loosen up. I don't need to be on top of everything all the time. Oh, I think that that is far more universal than what we might realize. So I thank you for that. Absolutely loved this conversation. This is so good. Honestly, so good. Uh, but I'm only, I can only be as good as the interviewer. So wonderful job with the questions and the way you showed up. It really allowed us both to have fun and shine. So thank you so much. Oh, I received that. Thank you. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.